You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. week. Am I right? <laughs> like, I, I hope you're well. I have a small cold, but don't worry. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. I'm home. Quarantine, as are you, I'm assuming. So happy fucking Sunday, folks. I hope you're doing okay. Today, I talk to music scene legend, legend, and all-around gentleman Michael Alago. We tell stories you're probably not expecting to hear on this podcast. Just a heads up, this episode is not about musical theater. It is about music, though. Did you, did you think that this whole podcast was musical theater? Surprise, motherfucker. It's about storytelling, and this guy has a lot of stories. If you're a fan of music, which is literally everyone in the world. You will adore him as much as I do. You can stream the documentary on his life on Netflix called Who the Fuck is That Guy? I didn't make that up. That is literally the title of the documentary. It totally makes sense. He's amazing. On March 25th, Amazon is releasing his memoir that you can actually pre-order right now. I have already pre-ordered it. It's called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. His journey is extraordinary. He doesn't even go into all of it in this podcast, which is why you have to buy his book, which is why you have to watch his documentary. But here's just a little taste, a little morsel of Michael Alago. I just have to tell you before I guess we like get into all this that Anne, a friend of yours, a friend of mine, was like, you got to watch this documentary. And I was like, okay, sure. Because I, I do love documentaries. And she goes, no, 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 you got to watch it like now. <laughs> so literally the next day. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Anne. Anne is the greatest. Fabulous. Um, and she she made me watch it. And I sat at home and, he, and my husband was gone. And I watched it. And then I watched it again. And then I watched it again. All in the same night. I think I watched it like three times. And it's called, uh, Who the Fuck is That Guy? And it's The you. Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. I appreciate yes. that it's not the journey of Michael Alago. It is a fabulous Oh, no, journey. everything is fabulous to me. So um, <laughs> I, I had that. to tell the director that word just 
kind of sort of has to be in there. Yeah, it, it, and it is. You are and fabulous. Yeah, and then so what happened is I sent it to my mom, and then I sent it to my uncle, and then I started sending it out because I said, you guys have to watch this. Because it's not immediately coming up on our Netflix cues, and I, it bothers me because it should. Um, and so I sent it to my mom, and then my mom FaceTimed me to watch. I wanted to watch my family watch your documentary. <laughs> You know when you get excited about a movie and you and you want to watch them watch it and you're like, hey, uh, this part. Oh, you're going to love this part. And it's like you're ruining it, but who cares? Um, so I got to do that with my family and they were really into it. Oh, and well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really, I was amazed and I just think it's so perfect that you're coming out with a book component to mm-hmm. this movie. Mm-hmm. Do you think... Is, is there, are there things in the book that aren't in the documentary? Oh, gosh, there's yeah. so many things. Yeah, <laughs> You know, we felt like uh, Drew and I, Drew Stone, who's the director of the film, and Michael Alex, the producer, we knew we just didn't want it to be about music. Okay. You know, it really had to be about a life. Mm-hmm. And um, we didn't want to make like a three-hour documentary either. <laughs> so I think we kind of whittle it down to about 88 minutes. Okay. And it's about my 25 years in the music business as an A&R executive and the artists that I have either signed or A&R'd. Mm-hmm. And it talks about addiction and recovery. And it talks about having uh, being HIV positive and in the early 90s having full-blown AIDS. And in the end, you know, this all this sex, drugs, and rock and roll would have been cliche if I died. But I didn't die. Yeah. So it's not a cliche. It's just that's the story of my life. It's just reality. So, um... The great part about this, and it really is a blessing, is that uh, we were telling everybody about the film, and then at one point, uh, Netflix approached us and wanted to put the film on Netflix. Well, that day, in 2017, changed the face of that doc for us, Mm -hmm. because it was worldwide, and I think a day or two later, I got about... 1,200 emails from people saying, oh my God, I just watched your documentary. I loved it. Now, some of those people were just all excited about Metallica. Of course. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, of course, I'm sure the they were just like metalheads. And... Yes, the biggest thing I've ever worked on, right. signed. Um, and the other things were people talking about um, you know, alcoholism and various mm. forms of addiction and various forms of recovery. Right. And sometimes even people mentioned to me their HIV status. And I felt like so honored mm. because I told the truth in my movie. And when you tell the truth, people respond to that. Yeah. So like, um, I, you know, I tell the same little story a lot. There was a kid, 21 years old, and he says, I live in Colombia with my dad. And I have HIV. And if I ever told my father, I think he would murder me. So, now, there, there are all those people who wrote to me about Metallica. So, I didn't really send them back a form letter. <laughs> but they got basically back the same email. That, thank you so much. I love that you appreciate the movie. And uh, sh- share it with all your friends. Yeah. And I usually would attach a picture of me and James Hetfield, the singer. <laughs> Amazing. And they loved that. And the other people who talked to me about other issues, like I had just mentioned, you can't just write back and say, oh, thanks for watching the movie. Yeah. So... You know, I'm not here to give advice or anything, but all I could do was let some of these people who were hurting or who found out that they were positive, um, I could just, I just let them know, 
what I did mm-hmm. to keep myself as healthy as possible. You know, I stopped drinking and drugging. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the doctor said, take this, I took that. And um, just kind of willed myself mm-hmm. into healthiness. Wow. <laughs> um, so all that to say, just now, here we are, it's uh, January 2020, <laughs> and we just got a message from Netflix that they're extending the movie yet again. Oh. To September 2020. So it's going to be almost three years that it's on the network. Wow. And it's like, it's unheard of. Usually, yes. they, nothing lasts that long. Right. But I guess the response that they get is that powerful. Mm-hmm. So within that time frame, there was a, a small company called Backbeat Books. Mm-hmm. And they approached me, and they, well, they approached my agent, Lee Sobel, and he wanted to know if I wanted to make a book. And I thought, sure, I want to make a book. (laughs) Why not? The ego prevails, and I want to make a book. (laughs) So I have a co-writer. Her name is Laura Davis Channon. And I have a co-writer because I don't think I could have done it on my own Mm -hmm. because I'm a bit of a scatterbrain. Mm -hmm. And from all the drink and the drugs, my full brain didn't come back like I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. Coupled with all this white matter in my brain which is called HIV encephalopathy which screws with your memory so I do have problems with memory but as a kid I kept journals from when I was 15 years old now those journals were not creative writing but it was like Eight o'clock, yeah. took the train from Brooklyn. Ten o'clock, arrived at Seabees. Midnight, <laughs> left Seabees to go walk up Park Avenue to Max's Kansas City. So for years, it was just a list of everything I did as a young person until it did get creative. Right. So it became creative writing and or poetry. And wow. between my co-writer and these journals that I kept up until uh, right this very minute, <laughs> that helped me make the book. Wow. So it's very exciting. I'm very excited about the book. That, yeah. Well, so are we. So, oh, like, yay. Um, I, and just FYI, yes. I'm sorry because I sometimes go off on a tangent. No. Right now, it's available on Amazon.com as a pre order. And uh. it's called I Am Michael Alago. And the subtitle is Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. All appropriate for my life. All appropriate and also all things that I would want to read about simultaneously. Uh So it's like, okay, they're all in one book. I'll just take the book. So you can just pre-order it now. Absolutely. Which is easy. So we can tell people to do that. It kind of fun that Mm -hmm. Laura and I noticed that as we were working on the book, it came out like short stories. Oh. I didn't plan on that, Mm -hmm. but it just, I don't know, it just came out like short stories. Nice. So at the beginning of the book, if you read about Brooklyn, you kind of know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. If you go into the book and you see this chapter, Never Fall in Love with a Hooker, you kind of know what you're going to get. <laughs> you know, so it's all things that if you even just, uh, you know, because sometimes people don't have the patience anymore to read a book, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But if you did want to go to the fifth chapter, the eighth chapter, and you want to go to Gratitude or Brooklyn or The Ritz... It's all those chapters are complete thoughts. Mm. But of course, I would like people to go from the beginning to the end <laughs> of the book. And uh, it's very exciting. But you can pick it up and say like, okay, I'm going to read Absolutely. this chunk and then I'm going to put it down and then right. I can read this chunk and learn and it kind of more. It, it makes it easier on the audience, on the reader, Fair. which, great. Yeah. If it that would... helps you, 
a lot of times Wonderful. even like we're on the train and we're like, oh, I got to pick this up and then put it back down mm-hmm. and pick it up and put yes. it down. We don't live in Connecticut where we can sit with a crocheted blanket all the time and have our tea on our porch and then, you know, have an eight hour reading session. Correct. That's not my life. Um, it's not, and I don't think it's yours either. I got to take a second and tell y'all about my personal training coaches, Steve and Rachel Payne at House of Pain. I've been doing their workout programs, let's say three years, and they shape bodies. And yes, they prepare people to compete in bodybuilding shows, which some of it's your jam. It's not my jam. What I love about them is that they understand the look that I want, tone, fit, something that's sustainable for my lifestyle. They create a custom individual plan that includes my workouts, my cardio, and my nutrition. I do their online program, but when I'm in Atlanta, I do one-on-one training with them at their facility and it kicks my ass. They FaceTime me whenever I have questions, alter my plan when needed, and no matter what stage you want to step on, competition, career, lifestyle, a red carpet, wedding, whatever it is, House of Pain personal training is the most personal training you can get. Visit their website, Train with Pain, T-R-A-I-N with P-A-Y-N-E dot com for more details. I guess I can just start asking you, like, can you tell me a story of one of your earliest memories of seeing shows because you started sure. so early. Yeah. It's it's crazy because I think, oh, you're in your 20s starting to go see rock shows. No. That's not you at all. No, I was 13. Yeah. Yeah. Um, me, my mom, and my sister went to visit my Aunt Bobby, uh, my mom's mm-hmm. younger sister, mm-hmm. and her daughter, Carol Ann, was home, and she had a boyfriend who we fondly called Manny the Greek from Astoria. <laughs> and... Um, I, uh, Manny just happened that day to come over to the house mm-hmm. and he said to Carol Ann, I have two tickets to Alice Cooper at Madison Square Garden. Do you want to go? She said, no, I have my period. I'm going to stay home and listen to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. But my 13-year-old cousin would probably want to go to the show. <laughs> so I had never been to a concert before. I had seen Alice Cooper on Don Kirshner's In Concert. Mm-hmm. I, I'd seen Alice Cooper on various music television mm-hmm. Shows, And I knew I wanted to go. So it was the following day. So I went to see Manny. I think he worked in the men's division of Saks Fifth Avenue. And um, I went to his office and we went down to Madison Square Garden together. It was June 3rd, 1973. And it was my first concert ever. So seeing the Alice Cooper and the theatricality yeah, I was gonna say. of the show... Mm-hmm. As a 13-year-old, it just blew me away. Yeah. You know, the high, high heel boots, the leopard skin high heel mm-hmm. boots, the top hat, you know, the, 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 the theatrical makeup yeah. he had on. And those songs were extraordinary. So that really was the beginning of my love for knowing that I wanted to go to concerts all the time. Wow. That's your first experience. Your first experience Absolutely. is, is so fr- far beyond anyone else's first well, concert experience. It's probably why you loved it so much because it was just crazy unreal. Like, I think my first concert was Hootie and the Blowfish, so I can't relate okay. to your A little concert. different. It's a little different. Um, but anyways, that's it's just so neat. Like, my... My dad grew up in Atlanta playing uh-huh. bars, uh-huh. like like a uh, guitar was like a studio musician type guy. Uh, but like your age, you know what I'm saying? Like like 13, 14 oh was God, playing in great. bars where he 
should not have been, mm-hmm. you know? And so he would always have these stories like, hey, I remember when Kiss came through and they weren't anybody and then they signed my guitar and then I sold it because I was like, they're not that talented. Like there's, and I'm like, oh my God, you idiot. But you know, there's all these times of like when you're young and you would just go and I don't know that young people just go anymore and I want them to just go. Well, you know, it was a very different time period mm-hmm. where a lot of the young people I know for some reason, we had no fear. Uh-huh. I have no idea why. We just had no fear. We just all wanted to go where the music was being played. Yeah. And we just went. Yeah. And we had no fear that in 1976, the Bowery was a very scary place. Yeah. And, you know, there were homeless all over the place. There were drugs everywhere. Mm-hmm. All of the local bodegas sold drugs besides beer and soda and whatever else they sold yeah baloney Mm -hmm. um you know so it was just a thing we had no fear and we just went we took we got on the train most of us from brooklyn Uh we got into the city and we just ran that's it's it's crazy to think about so it's a different time period because new york now i think people are more isolated than ever because of you know, as well as technology being our friend, yeah. it also is a thing that it keeps people isolated as well. Mm-hmm. And if they want to see something, music, sometimes they say to their friend, go to go to YouTube and see that new artist. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the day, if we heard about a new artist because we read The Village Voice, yeah. we got on the train to go see him or her or the, yeah. the group that we mm-hmm. wanted to see. Um so I don't know what we're t- where, where we're oh, going with any of this. Doesn't even matter. It's okay. just I like that we're even addressing any of it. So sure, it's fine. <laughs> so anyway, back in the seventies, yeah, we were fearless. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I and and that's the thing is like I just like to go do things because where I grew up was a small town. So whenever I would mm-hmm. see something coming or there was a show. That might be my only opportunity for the next two months. So I'm going to go. Right. And it blows my mind when I'm up here and I'm like pulling teeth to get people to come do things or see things with me. And I just go, what What else you got? Mm-hmm. Like, what else is there to live for? Like, I just like to see performances, perform myself, like whatever it is. And it, yeah, it was a different time, but I just hope that maybe because of all of this isolation, it will force people to get back into that. Oh, well, habit. I hope. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I live on positivity and hope because well, so I, I can't. I totally. I live on faith and hope and love. You yeah. Know? I, I just don't want it to be any other way. And I, you know, I'm not Pollyanna or anything like that, <laughs> but you know, it's like a domino effect. I think mm-hmm. if you spread love, uh, it can only be helpful. Yeah, what what bad can well, come from you. those good things? Right. <laughs> um, can you? Because I know that you probably have a million, but can you tell me a story about a show a show that changed your life? Like when you saw this show, you were like, "I I want to do that thing. Hmm. Maybe not be on stage, but be hmm. a part of that thing." Sure. Um, well, you know, I tell people a lot. Uh, I felt like I came out of the womb loving music. You know, uh, at, at 14 years old, I knew because I had seen so many television shows about music, like Dick Clark's American Bandstand, right. Don Cornelius' Soul Train, Don Kirshner's In Concert. Those three shows alone had such a variety of artists on there, from David Bowie to Aretha Franklin, that it broadened my, at an early age, it broadened my listening. And 77 WABC radio, AM radio. Mm. Um, 
I'm a little long-winded here, but uh, there were so many shows that changed my life. Uh, like I mentioned, Alice Cooper, because it was the very first concert ever. Mm-hmm. And then one of the later concerts, uh, 73, 83, 84, I am now an A&R person at Electra Records. It's my first gig as an A&R executive. At first, I have no idea what A&R means, so I have to <laughs> ask people. And um, uh, the chairman of uh, Electra Records was very, very kind to me, and he allowed me to listen in on his telephone conversations. And his telephone conversations were to publishers and lawyers and managers and artists. So... To answer your question now, <laughs> finally, um, I guess one of the shows that changed my life forever was seeing Metallica for the first time. When I saw them, I knew that, I really did know that they were going to be huge. Uh, I just, I loved the energy. I loved that all four young people on stage were wildly charismatic. I was totally crazy about their singer, James Hetfield. Mm-hmm. I always tell people, he has beautiful teeth. And they think, like, this one's crazy. So, you know, James is a natural-born ringleader on stage. He, knew, mm-hmm. he knows how to whip an audience into a frenzy so that... People just stay with them throughout the whole show. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I saw Metallica, I think for the first time in 1982 at L'Amour in Brooklyn with my friend Phil Cavano, who then was in uh, Shrapnel, but now plays in Monster Magnet. <laughs> and then lots of stuff happened. And in summer of 84, when I got to see Metallica with Anthrax and Raven mm-hmm. at Roseland on West 57th Street, which as a venue doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, that changed my life forever. And I knew that I had to sign them to Electra. And so the next day they came to my office. I ordered Chinese food and beer. And I felt like they never left the office. And that signing changed the landscape of rock and roll. It changed how people were listening to new metal. Um, And all the other record executives wanted their own brand of Metallica. Now that doesn't happen uh, very often, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But everyone wound up finding something great that worked for their label yeah. whether it was Slayer whether was it was Megadeth Slayer. well Slayer <laughs> are my second favorite band ever yeah. so whether it was Slayer whether it was Megadeth whether it was uh, King Diamond Merciful Fate uh, one of my favorite bands from Germany called Creator um, everybody found something yeah. they, uh, you know, that night when I signed Metallica to Elektra uh, Atlantic Records wound up signing Raven and Island Records wound up signing Anthrax. So everybody kind of made out beautifully in the end. Yeah, that's, wow. Um, Yeah, I think that when, I think that you, because you have such a, like an an artistic mind, because we'll get to that too, because you have an artistic mind, you were able to see beyond like, oh, they rock. It's, it's so much more than that. Like, you're seeing people that perform. You're seeing people that can give a show. It's, it's so much more. Well, that was the beginning. Once I saw, once we signed them and the, the records were on a, a selling and they were on a roll, yeah. I kind of felt confident in my job in knowing that I know how to spot people who are that creative and mm-hmm. that unique and that I hope would make a difference in the world. Yeah. Of music. And they did. Yeah. <laughs> with all, everyone yeah. that you've ever done this with. Um, in the, 
In the documentary, you see Cindy Lauper a few times, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you because it's not totally, I guess, transparent. I'm sure it's in your book, but like, can you tell me a little bit about that relationship? Can sure. you tell me a story oh, about course. Cindy? <laughs> I totally adore Cindy. Um, I saw her with Blue Angel when I was booking the Ritz. Nice. That was my first job in the music business from 1980 to 1983. I was the assistant booking director at the yeah. Ritz, and her band Blue Angel played there. Mm. We saw each other. We said hello, goodbye. Blah, blah, blah. Um, her manager, Lisa Barberis, was our publicity person both at Electra Records and Geffen Records. Uh, I was very close with Lisa and still am, and next week I think we're having lunch. Aww. She's managed Cindy for a very, very long time. Aww. So I worked at record companies up until 2005, and then I just became independent. Uh, I became a photographer. I put out three books, or this company, Bruno Gmunder in Berlin, put out the three books. And But I still knew I wanted to do A&R. Mm -hmm. And so it's 2009, and Cindy called me and said, you know, I love how you work as an A&R person and I want to make a dance record will you make that record would you A&R that record for me absolutely I love Cindy I have so much respect for her mm -hmm. because not only does she make pop records she veers off on all these tangents yeah um, she did kinky boots well she wrote that it was a beautiful you know it's incredible yeah. incredible so in 2009 we made this dance record called bring it to the brink and it did okay, I think. Um, and then she called back in 2010. And she, in that voice of hers, yeah. she was like, Michael, wow. you know, um, I won't try to imitate her, but she's totally fabulous. <laughs> uh, you know, Michael, I want to make a blues album. Have you ever made a blues album? I said, no, Sin, I never made a blues album. Have you? <laughs> no. I said, we're on, even, we're on an even playing field. But I would love to do this with you. I'm honored that you even asked me. So I'd go up to her home up on the Upper West Side, and we'd sit in her kitchen and eat Chinese food, and um, we would go through stacks of blues recordings, uh, albums, CDs. We would go on our computer and look online. Now, of course, all of these blues songs had to come from a woman's point of view, mm -hmm. or I, at least I thought so. <laughs> So we were having a good old time in her kitchen. There was a label that called Cindy and um, wanted to make this record with her. So we found her a, uh, a fabulous producer named Scott Bomar. He lived in Memphis mm -hmm. and a uh, perfect place to make a, uh, a blues recording. And we got every great new session musician from Isaac Hayes' band, Al Green's band. <laughs> and we made this extraordinary blues album. It's uh, called Memphis Blues. And um, it got nominated for Best Contemporary Blues Album for a Grammy in 2010. We didn't win, but that's okay because it indicated to us that we did a did fabulous a job. job making the record. Yeah. Now, there's a very long story that goes along with that, but I tell it in my book. Yeah, I am Michael Alago, <laughs> and the chapter is called Memphis Blues. And oh. it's really a, a fun chapter because we also go into civil rights mm -hmm. and what the city of Memphis is like. Yeah. And we talk about both civil rights and the music. So wow. it's really very interesting, oh, that chapter lovely. in the book. Yes. That's so good. I am. Um, so anyways, that's why yeah. Cindy's in the movie because of that reason, <laughs> because I adore her. We love working with each other and what an, I can what see an incredible artist. Being you know? two peas in a pod. Like I would love to be sitting on a bench where you guys are having We tea. have fun. We laugh. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's, um, I think that if you didn't, if you had never seen your documentary and you just looked at your resume on paper, mm -hmm. 
you, the fo- the image of you would be so different to me. Like I picture this like rough and tumble, kooky, like the big rock guy that I see at Slayer shows, that I see at like Crew Fest and all these things. Yes. And then I like hear you, and I'm like, oh my gosh! Like every every word that comes out of your mouth, I just like want to keep listening for some reason. It's just like so. <laughs> like well, I am sometimes rough and tumble. You are, um, yes. You know, I think what surprised Metallica the most when I went backstage at Roseland was that I was um, not an executive in a suit. Right. You know, so yeah. they looked at me, and Lars had to tell the other three guys, "That's Michael Alago from Electra," mm-hmm. and they were like, "Whoa!" Because you know they were maybe twenty one years old I was 23 24 right and um, so yeah I was never a suit and I think (laughs) that's why many of the artists when I went to see them and approached them Mm -hmm. we were all almost the same age Uh, I understood where they were coming from and they related to like how I operated you were like young and cool and you listened I was out every night yes it's it's just amazing to like even picture. Um, so, you know, I'm so sorry. Yeah. If, yes. if you look at my resume, it does speak to who I am. Yeah. But it's a little different once we start talking. Yeah. You know? I just love hearing your stories because I think that that's, it, it just informs itself so much. Because if you sure. look at, okay, this guy signing Metallica, going to CBGBs, going to, you know, all these things, and then you look at some of the latter part of your music resume, and then I see Nina Simone, I go, hold right. on, hold on, who the fuck is this Well, guy? also, nobody, you know, <laughs> going to these concerts, nobody thought that a young gay Puerto Rican from Brooklyn um, was the executive who signed pen to paper Metallica. Yeah. <laughs> and there I am, and there I went, and here we are. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, can you... Tell me, because you do reference it in the movie, so mm-hmm. people should watch it, mm-hmm. especially for that part. Um, but can you tell me a little bit of a story about your special relationship with Nina Simone? Can you? <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> and, and funny enough, again, and I will tell you a story, um, but I think Nina <laughs> Nina gets so much attention in my memoir that's coming out. I, oh. think, I think there's 20 pages about her in there. Oh, well, then Including a, an insane letter or two that she wrote to me. Um, I love Nina Simone. I, I, I still think she's the greatest artist that walks planet Earth. Um, my Aunt Jenny used to listen to, when I would go visit my dad's sister, my Aunt Jenny in Brooklyn, she had records on like Isaac Hayes' Shaft, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> The Best of Nancy Wilson, mm-hmm. and Nina Simone in concert. And uh, when I heard that voice as a 14, 15 year old, it had a very androgynous feel to it. Yes. And I had no idea at first, but it spoke to me. Mm-hmm. The, the tone of that voice spoke to me. Right. Fast forward, um, as a little bit older person buying albums, I bought a lot of her records. And I just thought, wow, she speaks volumes to me, mm-hmm. even though a lot of those songs she didn't write. So when she does Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues by Bob Dylan, or she does Here Comes the Sun by George Harrison, mm-hmm. she gets to the heart of the matter of a song where you think, oh, she must have wrote that. But she didn't. Yeah. She just was a great interpreter mm. of other people's material. We had a hoot <laughs> when we got together. Yeah. Uh, but don't get on her bad side. Because yeah. uh, it was not pretty. I tried not to get on her bad side. Uh, we just had... We, we really got along because I think she knew 
that as a young executive, which is where it started out as uh, the relationship, she knew I had so much love and respect for her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she just loved that. Yeah. So um, we became friends. I followed her all over the world to see her perform. Uh, I, like I said, I just think and I thought then she was the greatest artist known to man. I mean... I, I don't want to give away too much, no, but no, no, you know, I remember one night she was doing um, nine nights at the Village Gate or ten shows at the Village Gate, two shows a night, five nights. And I remember one night um, I went and I screamed because I was a little out of it. <laughs> Perform Baltimore, which is a Randy Newman song and the title of her record on CTI. She stopped the entire show. She looked directly at me, and I thought, oh, no, she's going to start yelling at me. She said, listen, we don't do Baltimore. When Creed Taylor gave me $10,000 to make that record for CTI, I never saw another dime, and he's lucky I never put a hatchet in his head. So, Michael... We don't do Baltimore. And she just went (laughs) back to the piano and started playing uh, and went into the next song. So there are so many little stories like that and better that I tell in my memoir. But that's a little story. And, you know, uh, I also spoke to her in April of 2003, the day before she died. And... um, I can tell, I talk about it in the book as well, but it was really very emotional and very, very sad for me because we were friends, um, let's see, 18, 19, 20, uh, almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. And it was 10 years before I even signed her to Electra in 92, 93. And we made a beautiful record with a 50 piece orchestra called A Single Woman. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So long-winded so once again, no. but I answered you, Nina Simone, question. And, and also, I could go on for another hour of that Nina Simone, <laughs> but I won't. That's its own. That's its own audio book. Oh, it's a, please, that's a, I wish. <laughs> yes, exactly. Are you going to record your book? Well, say a prayer, okay. and you say a prayer as well, both of you. Um, I do want to do an audio book. I think it would be so much fun. I think it would be um, great. And people like when I tell stories, so uh, I am going to ask the company uh, about considering an audio book. Yeah. Sure. I think you absolutely have to do it. Oh, So thank there you, you. go. <laughs> um, I absolutely freak out when it comes to singing harmonies. I hear someone sing a different note than me, and I assume I'm wrong. I've always looked for a better way to train my ear and give myself more confidence in my harmony singing ability. Now I get to tell you about my new go-to app, Harmony Helper. Playbill Features writer Ruthie Fireberg calls Harmony Helper a lifesaver for auditioning actors. Broadway Con star and Harmony Helper artistic advisor Rob McClure has called the app a game changer for the musical theater industry. Harmony Helper will help you develop the skills to harmonize using the newest tech available. With Harmony Helper, I can literally scan a sheet of music with the camera on my phone, and the app does some kind of witchcraft and maps out the harmony parts. It converts each line of music to audio, allows you to control the playback volume for custom control over your learning process, and then this, this is the crazy part. It provides real-time feedback to let you know if you're singing your part correctly. Take the rehearsal room into your own hands with Harmony Helper. Download it in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Can you... Tell me a story, and you're feel free to be like, no. Um, but I grew up in Georgia, and so people were very into like Reaganomics. People were very big fans of Nancy. And then, cut to me getting older, me realizing what all of that meant. Me realizing like that Rent wasn't just like a fun musical that I really liked. It was so much more. And then 
also cut to me seeing things like Angels in America, Mm -hmm. Normal Heart, like Mm -hmm. all these things. And I go, oh, this was so much bigger and I didn't know anything about it. Why didn't I know anything about it? But isn't that great that at some point you found all this out? Sure. And you went to it. Yeah. How marvelous that is. Just to broaden your own horizons and be able to speak beautifully about these shows yeah. to friends and maybe not family but to friends <laughs> and you know yeah but I just and then I see parts of your documentary uh, and I go can you just tell me a little bit about living in New York during that time and like what how that you know changed you just like being so, in New York with the AIDS epidemic uh, and okay, I had sure. no idea yeah um well let's see I've always been an open book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always do my best to be my best and tell the truth. I was never in the closet. Never knew, you know, like the, there's a saying, like closets are for clothes. They are. Yes. It wasn't for me. I just didn't know about that mm-hmm. because I just always thought if you didn't like me too bad, don't be my friend. <laughs> you know, don't talk to me. Um, so, thank goodness I always grew up either my first 18 years in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Until I moved into the city, and I'm 60 now, and uh, wow, I've experienced so many things living in New York. Thank God I lived in New York with yeah. our both Democrats and Republicans. Sure. And um, I don't know what you want me to tackle right now, but I think <laughs> you had asked me about the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Well, being a young gay man living in New York in the 80s, I found out that I had I was HIV positive, and for a very long time, um, I was asymptomatic, which meant I didn't have any uh, symptoms. Mm. Uh, but it was very, very scary because a lot of the men that I knew were getting very sick very quick. Mm. Whether they got uh, this thing, I believe it's called MAC, where their eyesight, they were losing their eyesight. Or where they got uh, Carposi sarcoma, which were all of the lesions all over mm. their body. Mm-hmm. I had so much fear that I would get that and more. I never got any of that, thank God. But at some point, probably mm, seven or eight years later, in the early 90s, I did have full-blown AIDS, and there was no medicine. Yeah. I always tell people these days when I when asked in an interview, if you've seen the movie Dallas Buyers Club, <laughs> yeah. it was like Dallas Buyers Club. Everyone was so, um, oh gosh, urgent to say, try to find something. Was there a like, cure? Oh, I have this medicine. It might work. Like, it, my friend took it, da 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 Right, exactly. It seemed like so people be- were just grappling right. to... Oh, yes. We were desperate. Yeah. We were hurting. We had so much fear in the gay community. And, you know, are you allowed to touch someone? Are you allowed to kiss someone? You know, like I remember in the 60s and 70s, people were, don't sit on that toilet toilet seat. seat. Yeah. You know? And people (laughs) are like, well, do I have to wear a mask when I speak to you? Uh, You know, it was wild. It was very sad. It was was very scary. Yeah. For people inside and outside the gay community. In any event, um, when I got sick in the early 90s, there was no medicine yet. And my doctor, who's brilliant, Barbara Starrett, she was on the forefront of being in the laboratories and just about medicine in general. Mm-hmm. And when she wanted me to go to St. Vincent's Hospital, mm-hmm. I said, you know what? That will be my death. I'm not going. Mm-hmm. She didn't like the idea that I wasn't going. But I had incredible health insurance because I worked for Time Warner. So I just lied on my sofa for about a year, and I had nurses come and take care of me. And at the very beginning, Barbara gave me um, IV vitamin drips. We didn't know what else to do. There were these pills, pills, that came from Mexico. 
what were these pills? I have no idea. Yeah. Take them. It might help. Well, uh, for me personally, it, obviously it didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, my doctor was so amazing that before she made her rounds every day at St. Vincent's, she would come to my home on her bicycle at like five o'clock in the morning just to check on me. And that alone just gave me so much hope that I had this extraordinary person looking after me. Mm -hmm. So at some point there was this medicine called AZT Mm -hmm. and Barbara didn't want me to take it. I said, you know what, you've kept me alive this long. I'm not going to take it. But what it was, it was prematurely approved by the FDA. Gotcha. And what it wound up doing is they gave you a little, didn't work, gave you a lot, it, it killed you. Yeah. So all of the men, mostly men that I knew, it killed all of them. So I was, I don't know if the word was thrilled, but I was uh, happy that I listened to Barbara and I didn't so take thankful. it. So thankful. Thankful. Uh, so something I think was called sequinavir came out, it was FDA approved. I took it. I think I was better within the year that uh, my T-cells went up, Mm -hmm. my immune system was not as bad as it was during that whole year of me lying on the sofa hoping that I wouldn't die. I went back to work at Electra, you know, quietly people talked, like, you know, Michael has AIDS. Um, But you know what? I was up on my feet. I was so skinny that it was horrible. And um, I was back at work. I didn't ever get full-blown again, but there's so many things being positive that Mm -hmm. one gets during the course of the years that, you know, at least I stayed alive and I take lots of medication. And, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the winter time, my, my lungs are shot. So I always pray that the bronchitis doesn't turn into pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but you know what? Here we are in 2020, and I'm kicking. Yeah. And uh, I'm grateful that I'm alive, and that if through this podcast or other um, podcasts or writings, I can impart some wisdom on people that uh, it's not a curable disease yet, but if one takes proper care of themselves and stops the shenanigans of the drink and the drugs or whatever, mm-hmm. you too can have as big a life as you want. Yeah. A healthy life. And you're you're doing that. So like, I do it. You your the way that you've shifted a little bit out of music into like this photography sure. world. Can you just like tell me a little bit about that? Because <laughs> it's so cool to me. I think uh-huh. it's great. Well, I besides loving music, I always loved photography. Mm-hmm. I was a nerdy little kid. If I went to someone's home, I always wanted to see <laughs> what their family albums looked like. Huh. Um, because, I don't know, I just love the idea mm-hmm. of looking at pictures yeah. and see what kind of stories those pictures told. Right. Fast forward to being an adult. After my 25 years of working at record companies, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to be a photographer. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so I became a photographer. And, you know, um, it's almost like shoot what you're attracted to. So yeah. I was attracted to scarred, muscular, tattooed men. Yeah. So that's what I shot. Scarred, muscular, tattooed men. A company called Bruno Gamunder in Berlin saw a little book I put out through the grace and thankfulness of this man, Mike Gallagher, who had a a paper collectibles store. And he said, you know, I'm straight, but 
you really take a good picture. Here's $5,000. See what you could do with it. So I found a company in Canada. I made a little 65-page book called Rough Gods, mm -hmm. and it was men and flowers, and uh, please, whatever. And um, <laughs> I, uh, word of mouth, I wound up selling out all 2,000 copies of it. So the people in Berlin found out about the book, and they signed me to like a... I think it was like a two-book deal. And so I made these two books of male erotica. One's called Brutal Truth, and the other one's called Beautiful Imperfections. And uh, so I have three books out uh, of male erotica. It's awesome. So they went out of, they didn't go out of business, but they don't distribute books like they used to anymore. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know when, but I'm gearing up because I do want to do a portrait book, mm. black and white, that of images that I just take on the iPhone with the hipstamatic application. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all those pictures come out as a square. Right. And I love anything in a square. So... <laughs> This next book that I hope to get out, maybe in the next two years or so, has really nothing to do with erotica, but it has lots to do with rock and roll. And um, so they're really kind of fabulous portraits of tattooed men and women. Mm -hmm. And of course, I also have to include flowers in there because I love flowers so much. Aww. And... Um, so I went on for too long already. So no, I don't I even know this. what your question was anymore. <laughs> no, I just wanted you to talk about your new love of photography. I think that's it's fantastic. my love of photography. <laughs> I live for pictures. I was even tempted to ask the sheriff here at Hoboken if I could take his picture on the way over because he was so hot. And I just thought, oh, I, I, you know what? I'll do it another time. <laughs> but I have no idea. Usually I have no problem walking up to somebody and asking if I could please take their photograph. Um, but I just didn't. And, um, can I be honest with you? Yes. I think I know the sheriff that you're talking about because he's hot. He's very <laughs> I handsome. I see him in Boya yeah. a lot, yeah. The, yeah. the coffee shop. Yeah. All I had to do was see him walk, and I thought, <laughs> yeah. oh, my God, help me, please. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I take pictures, and um, this past two years I've been writing this memoir with my friend Laura, so here we are. I'm so excited me about too. it. Me too. And, and truly, like, you know, you could come out with a book a year. I think you'd still have books until, mm, you know, the end. You that know, sounds good. I think, I think you're really good. But, you know, you do one year, you do photography, then you do this. And then you're like, okay, back to photography. And then you tell more stories. Um, I think everybody would love that because you're just so charismatic. And I think you're very beloved. And people don't know who you are. I hope they do by this book and by this movie and by meeting you. Uh, but we've and reached... by this podcast. And by this podcast, yeah. yes. Um, because I think that people often go, well, I don't listen to that music, so I could never... And I'm like, yeah, but a good story is a good story. Well, that's why, like I mentioned to you earlier, mm -hmm. when Drew Stone and Michael Alex and I were putting together the movie, we knew it just shouldn't be about music. Right. If you're going to talk about me, we have to just broaden the whole base. So like mm -hmm. you just said, well, I don't listen to heavy metal, someone might say, but it's much more, it's about a life. And yeah. it's about... Uh, you know what can happen in a life, mm -hmm. uh, the ups and the downs, and how and the struggles, and how if you pay attention, and just pay attention, it doesn't have to be about just the downs in life. You can get through it all, and part of the journey is, um, like I said, taking great care of oneself and mm -hmm. listening and learning and opening yourself up to different things, so that. Everyone who walks away from seeing the documentary mm -hmm. just takes a little bit of something away with them that maybe they could use in their own life. 
Yeah, I think, and and I also just hear so often so many terrible addiction stories. So when I see your journey and I see all this stuff, I go, there's hope for people. Like it just, it just brings so much like love. And I had a terrible uh, alcohol and uh, crack addiction and, you know, coupled out with HIV. I'm really surprised I not dead for real. Yeah. Um, so there is always hope out there. And, you know, when people ask me about, uh, how I got sober, I just let them know, you know, uh, I go to 12 step meetings and it's been a very big help for me. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it oh, makes me so happy. Uh, so we've reached this part of the podcast where it's almost the end, but we okay. play this kind of little game called short story. Okay, sure. Which I don't know if we're I, able to do. I was going to say, I don't know how <laughs> if I can tell a short story, but I'll take a breath and let's go. Okay. So I'm going to give you a word and you're going to tell me a two minute story that reminds you of that word. So it's going to be a random word. And if you're ready, your word is um, blue. Blue is a beautiful color. <laughs> it's the name of a Derek Jarman film of that he made when he went blind from AIDS. Blue is the color of a policeman's uniform who I love policemen, the physicality, <laughs> and that they are here to help all of us. Oh. Oh my gosh. Okay. So first of all, shortest short story ever. And it's so good. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. Um, so now you can give me a word and then I'll figure out a story from that. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's it like can password. Be it's like password. The word? Yeah. The word is money. Money. Okay, so I remember seeing. Did you ever see Cabaret at fifty at Studio Fifty Four with Alan Cumming? Okay, so money makes me think of when I was like seeing that show. We were on the sidelines. We're on the right side, and um, and seeing Alan Cumming just running through the rafters of Studio mm-hmm. Fifty Four. And by the way, I don't have memories of Studio Fifty Four because I'm too young. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't there, but I have all these understandings of what F- Studio Fifty Four was. And then to see him running around and then like doing cabaret. And and then we got to go backstage after the show and we're like running through the top. Uh, I think it's like the little, uh, the bridge part where they've got like uh, between both sides of the theater. And then we went back to the top to play with like the studio lights and like the, oh I, I know it was kind of, it's a little kooky. I can't tell the rest of that story because it's a little explicit, but um, it, it was really, really fun. So money makes me think about that fun night that I had at Studio 54. Wonderful. There you go. So yeah. how many times do we do this? Oh, no, that was it. That was it. Oh, wonderful. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so we, yeah. we both done good. We, okay, we, both, we both did it. Absolutely. So I like it because it, it kind of gives us a, a um, an edge off of the uh, intensity sometimes sure. in the stories. But, um, yeah, so I'm going to promote like crazy all of your stuff that's coming out, that's already come out, that's coming out, because I think that people deserve to hear your oh, story. thank you so much. I really appreciate and, this. Uh, yeah, so thank you, Michael. Thanks so this is coming. the end? Yeah. Oh, I wish we could go on another I know. hour. We Jeez. could, but it, they no, no, won't no, no, hear no. it. Teasing, and really, I'm so glad. Thank you for asking yes. such good questions, and I'm so glad that I could answer them very clearly for you, so yes. thanks a lot. Thank you. And one time... The kind of story we need right now. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.